Hi, it's Brendan here, and I want to tell you about a brilliant new addition to Spiked. We have launched a new daily newsletter. Every day, straight to your inbox, you'll get a roundup of all of the day's content, plus exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. Spiked is publishing more and more. More articles, more essays, more book reviews, more podcasts. And without a doubt, the best way to keep up to date with all of our brilliant output is by signing up to the daily newsletter. It means you won't miss a thing and you can browse our content every day. So don't delay. Sign up today. Go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. The definitions of diversity are are really very convoluted. No American layman, no non-lawyer, no non-civil rights lawyer knows really what diversity is, what a satisfactory level of diversity is, whether it's okay that all the diverse people, as minorities are called in your company, are Asian. Is that okay? Do women count? Does a minority woman count once or twice? None of these things are really clear to anyone at all. And if you get it wrong, you're not just wrong, you're actually a wicked racist and a sociopath. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Christopher Coldwell. Christopher is an American journalist and author. He is a former senior editor at the Weekly Standard, and he has written for a wide array of publications, including Slate, The Financial Times, The Atlantic Monthly, and The Wall Street Journal. He is a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, a conservative think tank based in California. In 2009, his book Reflections on the Revolution in Europe was published that explored the issue of Muslim immigration into Europe. And last year, he published The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, which argues that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had a long-term destabilizing impact on the American social fabric, and which even calls for the act's repeal. Chris, I want to start off by asking you about the standing of America, which is obviously a very, very broad question. But we've just come out of a year of woke craziness, culture war craziness, the BLM instability, which was not only in the United States, but it went global too. It was very pronounced in the United Kingdom, where there were big BLM protests as well. And the image many people now have of the United States is that it is an inescapably racist country. The police are racist. Institutions are racist. It's a country that was born in sin, born in slavery, born in racial hatred. And the new administration doesn't seem particularly keen to push back on some of those views. So I just wanted to start off by asking you, how much of a blow do you think 2020 was to the image of America and to the idea that America is actually a good place. Wow. Well, there's enough in that question to occupy us for the whole hour. (laughs) So let's start with a few things. I am really not so sure that 2020 changed the perception of the United States as racist in in, in the world's eyes. I think let's just say without passing judgment on the woke doctrine, which we'll have time to do 
later on. I think in the woke doctrine's own terms, I think that there's a, an understanding or an assumption that there's something racist about the whole of Western society. And so the United States, because it was a it was a colony, but because it was a society established on a kind of a neutral ground to which a lot of slave labor was imported, the United States was a, let's say, a battleground of some of the, of a lot of the racial conflicts of modernity. But I don't think that that exonerates other Western countries or makes the United States appear, let's say, less racist than, say, Britain or France or certainly other imperial colonial powers. So that aspect of it will pass. When you talk about damage to standing or or reputation, I do think that there we have seen a real change. If the United States has prided itself on one thing, you know, in the 200 and some odd years of its existence, it's been its protection of liberty. And I think that the way the United States has approached these issues has made it appear to a lot of people in other countries as not a particularly free place. That, I think, is the real change of the past year. Okay, so I want to dig down into some of the things that have gone wrong in the United States itself before we then talk about the various movements that have emerged in recent years. So I want to especially ask you about the 1960s. You've written extensively about the 1960s, especially in your book, Age of Entitlement. And one of the arguments you make, your core argument, is that the civil rights movement was a positive idea. It was about righting a terrible wrong in American history, i.e. racial segregation, the, the hangovers from the slavery era and so on. But then it became institutionalized, most obviously through the Civil Rights Act, and it became a tool that could be wielded by various different movements, various different groups, and in a way undermined democracy, undermined liberty, empowered the judiciary, empowered bureaucracy to create new ideas of the virtue of diversity, uh, the correct way of thinking, the necessity of managing race relations. So could you just give our listeners an overview of how you think a positive idea, which is that every American should have equal civil rights, gave rise to something that we might consider to be more problematic and more divisive. Thank you very much for framing it this way, because this is something that's often misunderstood, that what the book has misgivings about is not the civil rights movement or the civil rights impulse, but the Civil Rights Act. And it's really not a question of morality, but of of power. There's a lot you can say about the Civil Rights Act. It created an enormous increase in federal government power in order to overturn, you know, the still ongoing institutional racism of the American South. You know, it was a much, much more complicated enterprise than the people who favored the Civil Rights Act let on at the time. And the problem was that all the rules of the segregationist South had been set up by the same sort of democratic institutions that we had throughout the country. So it was very difficult to attack them without giving the government tools that would allow it to attack 
democracies elsewhere, local democracies elsewhere. And in fact, that's what happened. I mean, a lot of people over the last half a century have focused a lot in the United States about the size of government and the power of government. And that definitely is an issue here. But I think that more of the problems I point out are in the way government works. As you say, it empowered the judiciary. It created a lot of crimes. It created very large bureaucracies that could investigate and prosecute not just local authorities, but private companies for racism. And in doing that, it kind of muddled, it intentionally muddled the boundary between public and private. And this is a huge issue. This is another one of those issues that we, that ramifies endlessly. But for instance, the federal government or Lyndon Johnson signed an executive order restricting saying that companies that wanted to do business with the federal government had to do certain things about installing affirmative action programs and and hiring in this way. Basically, the easiest way to guarantee that you could continue to do business with the federal government was to start an affirmative action program. Mm. And since an unusually large number of businesses and pretty much all universities were now intertangled with the federal government, this meant the government had a look in into everything. And I, you know, to jump ahead and sum up in a, in a very broad way, a lot of the problem is the way these laws were interpreted as year after year by the judiciary. And this is a difference that I think might be harder for British people to understand because one of the main differences between the American and the classic British constitution is judicial review. When parliament votes something, it's the law period. You know, if you don't like it, Parliament can vote another law, but until it does, it's the law. In the United States, you can pass a law saying one thing, and then a a court can interpret it to say, well, actually, you know, under the Constitution, this really ought to mean the opposite thing. And then everyone has to walk around figuring out what the real law behind the statutory language is. And I'm afraid that civil rights law has offered a lot more opportunity for misunderstandings, both intentional and well-meaning, than other kinds of laws. Hi, it's Fraser Myers here, producer of The Brendan O'Neill Show. I know a lot of you will like to browse in incognito mode from time to time, but what you need to know is that it's not as incognito as you think. Perhaps that shouldn't be such a surprise. Incognito mode, like the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product. And we all know that Google is not exactly respectful of our privacy. Google made its fortune by tracking your movements online. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit against them in California, where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. So what's Google's defense? It said explicitly that incognito does not mean invisible. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? And how do you keep your data out of the hands of the big tech giants? You need ExpressVPN. Normally, even when you're using incognito mode, your online activity can still be tracked and data brokers can still get to buy and sell your data. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to identify you and your location. 
But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is hidden. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address, which is shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you and to harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is incredibly easy to use. No matter what device you're using, your phone, your laptop, your smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, you need to secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash Brendan and you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Brendan. expressvpn.com slash Brendan. So I wanted to ask you what you think this shift tells us about the 60s and about life and politics after the 60s, because what you have, the way lots of people view the 1960s is as a period of optimism, a period of experimentation, a period of positive change. And and in many ways, it, it was those things. But on the race issue in particular, and on the Civil Rights Act and what it became subsequently, it strikes me that that spoke to an underlying culture of pessimism, because there seems to have been a shift at some point from the optimism of Martin Luther King's idea that we should judge people by character rather than colour towards a very pessimistic, bureaucratic understanding of race as something that needs to be managed. It needs to be managed in the workplace. It needs to be managed in universities. The races could never possibly coexist, and therefore you need these experts. And alongside yourself, Elizabeth Lash Quinn has written about this kind of stuff too, the growth of a bureaucracy of race expertise who must oversee affirmative action, speech, conduct, and everything else. Do you think that the seed for that shift from optimism to pessimism says something about the 60s itself, or is it a failing of the 60s that gives rise to this situation? Here's the way I I lay it out in the book. And the book, I think the American experience of this is quite special. And it starts with World War II. There's one thing that the United States shares with Britain and the other countries of the Anglosphere coming out of World War II, which is that these are the only countries that don't emerge from World War II with an enormous overhang of guilt for either fascism or for having let fascism thrive. So the United States and Britain have a clear conscience in that regard. Britain's is complicated almost immediately by by India and decolonization. So they part ways in that way. But the United States by the 50s is almost alone in feeling guiltless about World War II, feeling actually much better about itself, feeling like it can be an example about everything. And Americans begin to sort of like mull over what they've done. You know, they've defeated fascism on two continents. They've created a a weapon, the atomic bomb, that's so formidable that, you know, there's never been anything to compare to it. And just because of the situation in which they're left, you know, they're producing a huge chunk of the world's GNP. I mean, the United States is by far the richest country in the world. So every everyone is imitating it. And the country enters the 1960s with a feeling of kind of invincibility. So this is total optimism. 
But into this feeling of just incredible bubbling optimism comes a terrible complication. The assassination of John F. Kennedy, still unsolved even today. I mean, a truly traumatic, mind-bending experience for the Americans who lived through it. And actually one that Lyndon Johnson was able to use very skillfully to draw Americans behind his program. The civil rights era began, let's just say the great society began with Lyndon Johnson, you know, suddenly brought into office, not elected, sort of like sworn into office with the president's widow standing next to him the evening the the, the president was murdered in, in, in Dallas and saying, I have this big program which will redeem, you know, the great country that we are. Okay. And I think there were two aspects of it since you've spoken about optimism that I would have you focus on. And these are not just the Civil Rights Act, but also the Vietnam War, which are the two great Johnson initiatives of 1964. And they were undertaken for pretty much the same reason. You know, Johnson's attitude was, people say these are two huge problems, racism in America and international communism, and that we really ought to tread carefully. Well, I have more faith in the American people than that. And so Johnson moved boldly ahead. And we know the results of Vietnam. Okay. We lost the war in Vietnam. I would say that in the 1960s, we got similar results out of the Civil Rights Act, you know, unrest, alienation, resentment, cities burning. But it was a part of the 1960s that we, there was no home to go through from there. You could not pull out of the American race problem the way you could pull out of Vietnam. And so an initially extremely optimistic, open-minded kind of attitude towards it was replaced by a kind of a, a hard-bitten and cynical one. And how much do you think the battle lines that we are living through today, which I want to ask you a bit about shortly, how much do you think they were drawn in the 1960s, or particularly, I guess, towards the end of the 1960s? So the 1960s are a very fascinating, confusing moment, especially in the United States, for the reasons you've just said. You get to the end of the 1960s and you have someone like Nixon talking about the silent majority, the idea that there is this huge swathe of people out there who don't share the outlooks and the ideas and possibly the prejudices of, of the emerging new elites or of the, the more liberal wing of the establishment. You then, of course, have the hard hat riot in 1970, which I've always found incredibly interesting in terms of what it represented as a pushback, what that was about, what the working class men, largely, who took part in that riot, what they were saying, what they were trying to establish. To what extent do you think coming out of the 60s in particular, we start to see the lines being drawn between an establishment that sees it as its responsibility to re-engineer people in, in the correct way and a large body of the population who want a bit more independence than that or who don't trust the establishment to carry out that kind of role. Do you think the current culture will start to be born in that period? Yes, that's it. You have it exactly. I mean, I think that in our day and age, there is a tendency of those who control the public conversation, you know, people on television, people who write newspaper columns, to moralize this question and to say, for instance, that populism is a form of, of racism, you know. I do not believe that. However, 
I can see how the confusion would result because I do believe that the argument is over an old-fashioned pre-1960s understanding of politics and a 1960s managerial understanding of politics that was partly brought in to fight racism. That's a very useful way of describing it. And just taking that forward, I want to look at some of the longer-term consequences of what you describe in your book, Age of Entitlement, and what you've just described to us now. Because it seems to me not to be pessimistic. I'm generally a fairly optimistic person, but it does seem to me that that the managerial aspect of politics, particularly the racial managerialism, which I think is a very regressive trend in general, that seems to have got worse and worse. So not only, and I want to come on to talk in particular about how the Civil Rights Act assisted other movements like the transgender movement and the same-sex marriage movement and so on. I want to get your views on that. But on the race question in particular, it seems we've gone from a desire to right the wrongs of history and to to move beyond the question of race into something different and new and more open-minded. And we've gone into a world which is almost myopically obsessed with the idea of race and with the idea that it informs every attitude, every opinion, every institution. It needs constant management, constant assessment. And it, it often gets institutionalized through the ideology of diversity, which is something that you have written about, which is I've always found quite striking because you can talk about diversity in two ways. You can talk about the fact of diversity. America is factually a diverse country. Britain is factually a diverse country. But you can also talk about it in an ideological fashion, diversity as something that must be celebrated, which really calls into question the idea that a society can even have a cohering narrative given the competing diverse views and ways of life that exist within it. So could you just talk about how you understand the cult of diversity, I guess, and how you think that follows on from the kind of journey you've been describing. You know, diversity arises at a very specific moment in the post-Civil Rights Act history, which is the, you know, we've spoken in kind of general terms about how the, the Civil Rights Act was a failure for its first decade or so. And we spoke about the unrest, the riots, and that sort of thing. That was not the only way it failed. It failed to bring about the kind of integration, the kind of desegregation that was its main purpose. And this was partly, it is true, because people were hiding out from it. White people were running from racial integration. There's no question about that. They were moving to suburbs, and this created a lot of strange side issues like like the collapse of urban school systems and you know a lot of that sort of thing was going on but but it turns out that the tools of the civil rights act unprecedented though they were were still inadequate to bring about the desegregation desired and so the main tool of bringing about change turned into quotas and affirmative action. Or let's say affirmative action, which was a very old term, and it started in the early 60s, but used in a new way to mean racial quotas of the sort that you have actually in India, in countries like that. It was open to an obvious objection, which actually was that it was the same sort of race-conscious prejudice that, that we just overturned, just operating with different 
you know, racial valuations, which I think is a pretty undeniable truth. And when it came before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court in a rather cut and dried case where a highly qualified Marine veteran applying to medical school in California was denied admission, whereas people who were much less qualified were given admission because of their race. He was admitted to school, but the court was divided on whether this should mean an end to affirmative action. And they decided on a, on a sort of like a very convoluted formula, which is that the United States as a whole should follow the rules that had been devised at Harvard for Harvard to create its undergraduate class, which were diversity, that diversity is a legitimate interest of universities. And so it became a right to which people suing under Civil Rights Act felt that they could demand. And so now the definitions of diversity are are really very convoluted. No American layman, no non-lawyer, no non-civil rights lawyer knows really what diversity is, what a satisfactory level of diversity is, whether it's okay that, let's say, all the diverse people, as minorities are called in your company, are Asian. Is that okay? Do women count? Does a minority woman count once or twice? None of these things are really clear to anyone at all. So what happens is if you run a business, you are constantly left kind of like looking towards the government to direct you as to what you are allowed to do. And nobody knows this. And in order to get it right, you must get guidance from the government. And if you get it wrong, you're not just wrong. You're actually a wicked racist and a sociopath. So it's, it creates a, a very difficult situation, certainly for business owners, in which everyone is acting in a very tentative kind of way. Investing is one of the best ways to grow wealth over the long term. However, high commissions and clunky products from traditional stockbrokers can make it seem complicated for people to start investing. Meanwhile, trillion-dollar investment companies get built, but very few people benefit from that wealth creation. Free Trade is on a mission to change that by breaking down these barriers and by opening up stock investing to everyone. While other brokers charge up to £12 for every trade, Free Trade doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can invest and keep more of your profits. The award-winning investment app is used by over 250,000 people. It is authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority and protected by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. Free Trade has won the award for Best Online Trading Platform at the British Bank Awards for two years in a row. Free Trade lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs and investment trusts, all without commissions. The intuitive design makes investing simple for any experience level, beginners and experts alike. You can start investing from as little as just £2. Free Trade doesn't offer any speculative products such as CFDs or spread betting or products with leverage. And they don't do day trading. They are all about long-term investing with a transparent pricing model and no hidden fees or inflated spreads. You can sign up for a general investment account or a stocks and shares ISA, or you can sign up to Free Trade Plus with more advanced order types and a bigger stock universe. Self-invested personal pensions are also being launched on Free Trade soon. 
Go to freetrade.io slash Brendan, and if you register and fund your account, you will get a randomly allocated free share worth between £3 and £200. Some of the shares you win can include Greg's, Rightmove, or Apple. When you invest, your capital is at risk, the value of your investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than your original investment. For more information, visit freetrade.io. And for the special offer, visit freetrade.io slash Brendan. The way you describe just on the Civil Rights Act and its long-term consequences, the way you describe it is that it's almost become a rival constitution, which I think is a very is a very interesting way to talk about it and a very useful way to examine its consequences. And I wonder if you could say something about what you mean by that. The, the way I see it is, for example, on the issue of diversity, which we've just been talking about, it's very striking to me that on many American campuses and on British campuses as well, but on many American campuses, the ideal of diversity will often be elevated above the ideal of freedom of speech. So if certain forms of speech are seen as grating against the necessity of diversity or impacted upon diverse people, diverse students, then it becomes problematic. It can potentially be curbed and so on. Even the American Civil Liberties Union in recent years seems to have jettisoned its long-term commitment and its pretty hardcore commitment to the First Amendment, the value of freedom of speech in preference for a celebration of diversity and, and the ideology of diversity. So that to me looks like one example of how the post-1960s era has given rise to a rival constitution in which you have a conflict almost between the idea of diversity, the idea of institutionalized multiculturalism against the founding idea of the constitution itself, of the Bill of Rights, which is the First Amendment. So you can just say something to us about the extent to which you think this has become a rival constitution and why you think that's problematic. Well, you know, there are two ways in which I'd like to discuss this. And the first is the sort of like the obvious way that laws are made. At the start of the 1960s, the United States made laws pretty much the way Britain does. You know, if they get voted by the legislature and pass the upper house and signed by the executive, they become law. And if you don't like them, you have to overturn the law and get a new law. Here's where the ability of civil rights law to overrule statutory law became problematic. I think that the legislative branch, armed with its tool of judicial review, was very excited by the moral claims of, of, of civil rights and took up a role as kind of a priesthood of American life. And so you had a, you had a situation where, you know, an example I like to use is bilingual education. We have bilingual education across the United States now, but no one ever voted for it. What happened is that you had a an argument that immigrant students had a right to be taught in their own language, and the Supreme Court agreed in a case called Lao that, well, yes, they did. And so then the, the Department of Education wrote a series of guidelines based on the Supreme Court decision. And then courts started making decisions about whether the guidelines had been met. And so you had an entire policy and uh, something that became a pillar of the American way of life and is still actually that was never voted or never, you know, I mean, another obvious one would be abortion law, which is not strictly a, a civil rights issue, but which arose out of the same idea 
of the Supreme Court as a a moral institution. You know, this is not the place to argue about our abortion laws. But the fact is, we don't have abortion laws. Unlike European countries, we don't have an abortion law. We just have the decision of six justices that was made in 1973. And ever since then, each party has tried to stack the Supreme Court to get to the abortion law it desires. That is the sense in which I mean that it's a second constitution. And what impact do you think that has on democracy when you have this juridification of political life in the United States and this extraordinary power of six or seven justices to determine what people are allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. I mean, surely that drains the lifeblood from democratic life. And not only does it deny, for example, on the issue of abortion, not necessarily one that we might want to dwell on, but as an example, not only does it deny pro-life people of the ability to challenge or engage or partake in a democratic discussion about what's right and what's wrong, but also it denies pro-choice people of the ability to fortify their values or their beliefs and to try to democratically make them something that should be supported, that should be enacted, that should be part of the American way of life. So across the board of those various issues and and the kind of post-60s empowerment of justices and bureaucrats and managerial elites, what has that done to American democracy? Surely it has made it wither away to a certain extent. Yes, it's it's weakened it a great deal. And it's and in fact it's wound up not only taking power away from voters and representatives, it's also wound up politicizing and thereby delegitimizing the court itself. So the price has been very steep. I mean, there are many people in the Democratic Party who would like to stack the Supreme Court with extra justices to sort of like dilute the current majority which they consider too conservative. There's no evidence yet that we actually do have a conservative Supreme Court. That will become clear only as the three newest justices sort of start voting together. But in fact, you know, one of Donald Trump's justices, Neil Gorsuch, authored the opinion that extended the civil rights protections to to transgender people. So, I mean, it's really not a foregone conclusion that we actually do have a right-wing Supreme Court, but it is, it's too right wing for political activists right now. Okay. So you, you mentioned transgender there. And I want to just take the discussion on beyond the race question to look at other ways, I guess, in which the Civil Rights Act gave rise to a, a new kind of politics, a new kind of elite politics, a new kind of campaigning politics in relation to, for example, gay rights, transgender rights. One thing I wanted to ask you about in particular, because I've long admired your writing on this issue, was the issue of uh, same-sex marriage. And in a piece you wrote a few years ago, you described very well the way in which, or the speed with which, an idea like same-sex marriage went from being a joke to being a dogma. And that was something that I was very struck by at the time as well. The speed with which it went from being a rather eccentric idea being promoted by small numbers of people to being something that you were not allowed to criticize or question or oppose in public life. And if you did, your business would be boycotted. You would be called homophobic. You might be expelled from polite society. I want to ask you in relation to that issue in particular and that culture, that culture of pressure, that culture of conformism, How did that come about and how problematic do you think that has become? There are a few stages that are worth talking about. One is that the Civil Rights Act, although 
in the public's mind, it was meant to solve a highly specific problem, which is racial segregation in the Deep South, which they were seeing on their televisions every night. Although that's the way the public understood it, that's not the way the law was written. It had a very capacious list of identifying traits for which it would be henceforth wrong to discriminate, you know? And so it was things like national origin and sex and, and other categories were, were soon added, you know, um, Vietnam vet status and homosexuality, transgender identification. So it, it spread in terms of who could, could take advantage of it. It got more serious in terms of what remedies could be doled out and what penalties could be imposed on companies. And this is a more subtle thing. The things that constituted grounds for finding someone guilty of discrimination grew. Mm. And so if we take sex now, around 1970, for a company to be found guilty of being sexist in its hiring practices, you would have to have a cigar chomping old caricature of a, of a boss saying, we don't even look for women to hire here because we think none of them are up to the job. Okay. That would get you busted for, for sex discrimination. A decade later, a pattern of disparity would suffice. And then by a decade after that, not to get too complicated, but when you get to the 1991 Bush, you know, civil rights act, when it became to sue for pain and suffering, you could be found guilty of sex discrimination for what is called hostile environment. And, uh, and this is not my area of expertise, but there are a lot of people online who write it. Eugene Volokh, the blogger, actually writes about this kind of lawsuit. And so basically a guy working in some division of a company who has a Pirelli calendar or a Sports Illustrated swimsuit calendar hanging behind his desk on a day that a woman comes in to interview for a job conveys a sort of hostility to gender equality. It creates a hostile environment. And so he becomes a problem inside the company and he becomes a problem for the company's reputation. And so the company now feels it must discipline him. And this spreads and it's encouraged. And this is the key, I think, the lawsuit hostile environment culture. We could talk about this for a half an hour, but but to jump ahead, for instance, to the, the Floyd riots of last summer, you know, the Black Lives Matter riots and the really striking outcome of it, which was the entire, the reconfiguration of the entire corporate sector. Now, it's a very complicated thing to say what's going on. There was a lot of pushing. There was a lot of activism. But a lot of it is just these human resources departments in multi-billion dollar companies who were scared to death and saying, wait a second, you know, this guy went to take one example, okay, the football coach at Oklahoma State University went on a fishing trip with his sons wearing a t-shirt that had the logo of a television station that was friendly to Donald Trump. And then the university felt it had to go out and make him apologize for that. And this is the sort of thing. These are people who are sort of scared to death that a university with a large endowment or a corporation with a lot of 
money can be sued, can be ruined over this. And so it turns corporations into enforcers of, of speech codes. I love the feeling I get when I learn something new, that aha moment. It is so satisfying and empowering. With the Great Courses Plus, I can experience that feeling at any time I choose. Recently, I've been enjoying the course Living History, experiencing great events of the ancient and medieval worlds. This fantastic course covers dozens of turning points where the tides of history changed forever, from the final days of Julius Caesar to the founding of Islam. You can hear the true heartbeat of history by learning about these epic moments through the eyes of citizens who lived through them. I want you to try The Great Courses Plus. There is so much knowledge to tap into, you're going to love it. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited streaming access to thousands of video lectures on virtually anything that interests you. Learn chess from an expert, explore the cosmos, even get tips on how to train your dog. The possibilities are endless. And with The Great Courses Plus, the content is all thoroughly vetted, fact-based information that you can trust from some of the best professors and top experts in their fields all over the world. Plus, you can download The Great Courses Plus app and watch or listen on any device, anytime you want. I want you to experience that aha moment for yourself. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today to start your 14-day free trial. And for a limited time, my listeners can save 20% off the annual membership. But this is only available through my special URL. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan. Don't forget, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brendan. That's a, a very useful way of understanding it. And I think one of the most striking things of 2020 has been the intensification of these trends within corporations and, you know, whether it's corporations making their staff read Robin D'Angelo's book on white fragility or more keenly policing interactions between the genders and between the races, that's been quite pronounced in the UK as well as a byproduct of 2020. So I think that's, that's a really important point. In relation to from joke to dogma, I also wanted to ask you about the transgender issue, because I think in some ways this is even more striking than the issue of same-sex marriage and then some of the other uh, issues that we've been talking about, because it not only because of the speed with which it's become an orthodoxy in certain sections of society that you can change sex, that you can you can declare what sex you are and everyone else must absolutely respect that and use the correct pronouns. And if they don't, they can be punished in the workplace, they can be banned from Twitter, etc., etc., not only for that reason, but also because this issue in particular, it strikes me, cuts at the very understanding of how society works. When words like mother and father become supposedly problematic, when open discussions about the importance of family life become difficult to conduct, when the very idea that there are two sexes and that they might be different and complementary and so on, when those kinds of ideas which have informed human life and human discussion for an immeasurable amount of time, when they become speech crimes or things that it's difficult to have out in the open, that could well pose a breaking point issue. How do you see the transgender issue currently playing out? And to what extent do you think it could be a straw on the camel's back in relation to some of these problems we're talking about? 
I see it about the way you do. Yes, I do think that it's very hard for the public to identify with or understand. You know, one begins to notice those who push issues like these really don't do so in very public forums. It tends to be carried forward through regulations and without a lot of fanfare. So it is perhaps the sign of a bureaucratic establishment losing faith in its own righteousness. And in relation to that, it would be remiss of me not to ask you specifically about the populist events of recent years, obviously in the United Kingdom with Brexit, in America with Donald Trump, and across Europe, there are various populist parties and the social democratic parties in particular are doing worse and worse in some countries. One thing I often think about, no one else talks about this, but I often think about the huge, huge protests that took place in France about five or six years ago in relation to same-sex marriage. Most people have forgotten about these. I have to remind people all the time that tens of thousands of people were on the streets of Paris and elsewhere protesting against same-sex marriage, same-sex adoption, and these were often perfectly normal working-class people. I'm sure many of them went on to become the kind of gilets jaunes-style protesters and part of that movement too. So looking at populism in the round over the past few years, how much do you think this is a pushback against the kind of managerialism you're talking about? Is it a follow-on from the hard hat riot kind of politics? Is it the silent majority finally saying something? How do you see those kinds of movements as, as diverse as they are? Well, actually, you know, I'd spend a lot of time writing about these things in Europe and in, in Britain. And um, I think it varies from, from country to country. But to just take the example of Brexit, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the European Union has served a lot of functions for, a, you know, as society gets more complex, there is an excuse for managerial elites to step in and, and say, look, if we submitted everything to a vote and it would be kind of like Monty Python's constitutional peasant, right? You'd never get anything done. And so someone's got to take the hard work of like making these decisions about day-to-day -day things. And in a lot of ways, the EU played the role in Britain that sort of civil rights and human rights bureaucracies did in the United States. That is, you say to people, yes, I know you traditionally got to vote on these things, but actually it's a very complicated world now and and the, the global market is a very delicate thing and I'm afraid we're just not allowed to have arguments over working conditions anymore, you know, and and that got very frustrating to it in a democratic culture like Britain. I do think that that's very much the same thing. The Gilets jaunes has an element of that too. French society does not have the same type of democratic tradition that the United States and, and Britain do. I mean, I think that they tend to protest against ineffectuality more than they do about against lack of representation. Whereas in the United States and in Britain, having the right to make a decision removed from you is a grievance, no matter how well the country is doing. And do you think that these various movements, as different as they are, obviously, the vote for Trump is different to the vote for Brexit, and the vote for Brexit is different to the Gilets jaunes, and they all have their local flavours and their local influences and their his specific historical influences too. I completely agree with you that the European Union played a similar role to the post-60s explosion of judicial intervention into political life in the United States in the sense that it was about outsourcing sovereignty and what traditionally would have been a decision-making process that people were engaged in, outsourcing that to experts, managers, people who we didn't really have direct control over. 
So do you see populism in its various different forms as an attempt to reclaim democratic rights, to reclaim the right of people to have the discussion about abortion in the United States or have the discussion about transgenderism or whatever else it might be? Is this, even if it may not be perfectly formed and perfectly articulated, is this an effort by people to reclaim authority from the managerial class of the late 20th century? Yes, it is. And and I think there's no need to make excuses about it being imperfectly formed or articulated. There's never been a real living democracy in the world where all the participants in it articulated their points perfectly. That can't be made a a condition for participating in a democracy. Absolutely. Okay. And my final question for you, Chris, before you go, equality is a good idea. It's something I've always been in favor of. I think everyone should have equal rights. They should have equal opportunities But that seems to have gone catastrophically wrong over the past three or four or five decades. And it's given rise to racial reengineering, punishing people for using the wrong pronouns, boycotting people if they don't bow down to the institution of same-sex marriage. In the current climate, how would you make the the case for democratic equality, for, for a society in which people ought to be treated equally, rather than this kind of culture of punishment and division that the 60s bizarrely gave rise to oh that would be if i if i had that answer it would it would solve all of our problems <laughs> but i do our tradition of equality i think as the you know as the declaration of independence understood it means you know basically equality in the eyes of god that we're all we all have lives of of value i don't think that it is the invitation to undertake a a super ambitious project to shave off every idiosyncrasy of every, you know, person and every group in the society. Christopher Colwell, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.